to the heightstheater.com or to reserve a VIP suite call 713-526-4000 extension 314 KPFT Houston I'm Tony Diaz and I've heard you've been talking about us some of you have said some nice things some of you have said some not so nice things but we've never spoken together until now because you're about to cross to the other side. Donald Trump's stormy past has come back to haunt him. Now, this is not a morality issue, because y'all knew Trump was freaky when you elected him. And, of course, you've seen a lot of evangelical leaders on cable TV explaining how they have no beef with Trump playing hide the beef as long as they got a Supreme Court justice who is willing to overturn Roe versus Wade, as long as they could keep their tax exemption status, and as long as they could openly endorse the next presidential candidate after the impeachment. Now, I'll tell you what this is really about. I've spoken to some of the 8.9% Hispanics who voted for Trump, and some of them voted for him because he's an alleged billionaire, and they thought somehow that would make them money. Now, maybe they weren't expecting to make billions. They were probably hoping for millions. Querían ser millonarios. Well, that hasn't happened. And in fact, after Trump's tax scam, only corporate millionaires and billionaires have made a ton of money. Working class folks some of them managed to get a $1 an hour raise. So that comes out to about 40 bucks a week, maybe 36 bucks a week after taxes. And they still believe the myth that Trump is a master negotiator. You see, that's the problem. If a porn star can get the best of Donald Trump after getting the worst of Trump, is he really the master negotiator? I mean, we got to give credit to Stormy Daniels and her legal team. They've managed to trump Trump using the tactics he's perfected. Now, in all fairness, maybe Trump and his team were testing out new TV show ideas. Maybe this is a setup for a game show titled something like, Are You Smarter Than a Porn Star? Because so far, they're not. I don't know if you've watched on the news some of the lame excuses they've given for bungling this issue. They forgot to sign the contract? Even Texas got a shout out for this. Evidently, there's some notary public in Dallas who forgot to sign the document. Even the pseudonym, David Dennison. Now we know that's the alias Trump used for this document. Think about that. Regular Americans watching TV at home have cracked the code that the president used to impose a gag order on a porn star. That's what's crazy about this. If Donald Trump can outmaneuver a porn star, how in the world is he going to outmaneuver a thug dictator like Putin? And that is the world premiere of the other side, a new television program I'm happy to be on, along with Jonathan Wynn, Raul Rodriguez, Jacob Monty, believe it or not, and other folks. It's going to be kind of like Jimmy Kimmel 
meets Rachel Maddow, and they had a kid that looked like maybe the love child between Arnold Schwarzenegger and the cleaning lady. It had something like that, <laughs> or not. And of course, it's going to be cutting edge, coming at politics like you've never seen before. Very happy to actually launch it right here, right now. It's going to be on our Facebook page and our Twitter page. It's at the other side, tele. Com, so T-L-E dot C-O-M, weekly installments, and the world will never be the same again. If you want to get involved, hey, do you look like Ted Cruz? That may finally pay off. If you look like Ted Cruz, call the station right now or send a note to info at the other side, tele.com. And today on the program, in the classic media of radio, as you've come to expect for the past 17 years, we're happy to bring you another world-class lineup of Chicana, Chicano, Latina, Latino, Intelligentsia. At the top of the program, we have in studio the icon, Dalala Montoya. She's actually in the studio right now, so i got to say hi to her. ¿Cómo estás? Thank you so much for coming out. Appreciate it. And we'll be talking to her about some of these incredible projects that she has lined up, as well as some of the new work that she has. And then in the second half of the show, our dear friend, Stephanie Elizondo Christ. Oh, my goodness. We love her. She's been to Nuestra Palabra all the way from when her first book came out. She's an hermanita from Mocondo and from so many other endeavors. Our crews hung out with her in different parts of the country. We've always Houston's always shown her a lot of love. And she is back with a great book, Ancients and Saints. However, she also just completed a battle with cancer. And she's going to share some of that with us as well. So we're going to be happy to have her on the air. And we are, of course, being transmitted through the magic of radio with our soundboard folks. We got Jack and Letty running it. Thank you both for helping out. Little pause in there. They're waving at me right now, so that's okay. They're doing the international symbol of... Always a pleasure. Awesome. That's what she was uh, <laughs> signaling. And, of course, we really appreciate it because you guys make it feel and sound easy. And, of course, this is Tony Diaz and Traficante. Right now, let's take it. Let's get right to Delilah. As we, uh, this is our soapbox section. Today, we wanted to use it to talk about a couple things, including the new TV show. I do want to remind folks as well that next Wednesday, April 11th, folks are convening in Austin, and the Texas State Board of Education is meeting again. Folks who are always helping the community are going back there to demand that they approve. The Texas Essential Knowledge and Skills, basically guidelines for Mexican American Studies courses. And also, they should approve the Mexican American Studies course, Special Topic Social Studies, that was started at Houston Independent School District. The The whole point there is that, as you know, I submitted a textbook, and they keep moving the goalposts. So they have criteria that they make up. They pull it out of their brains because there are no specific teaks, there are no specific guidelines. And again, if this is not... If this is not just another procedural poll tax, then you need to call your Texas State Board of Ed member or any politician and demand that they approve the TEKS, Texas Essential Knowledge and Skills for Mexican American Studies, and also the course, Special Topics, Social Studies that emanated out of the Houston Independent School District. If you can't get up to Austin yourself, call a couple of officials and tell them about it. We'll give you more information next week as well, but this is important. And I mention it too because... Our first guest is one of the icons of our culture and community. Chicana artist Delilah Montoya grounds the experience 
of the Southwest and brings together a multiplicity of syncretic forms and practices from those of the Aztecs, Mexica, Mexico and Spain to cross-border vernacular traditions, all of which are ch shaded by contemporary American customs and values. Montoya's numerous projects investigate cultural phenomena, always addressing and often confronting viewers' assumptions. Women Boxers, The New Warriors, a book project featuring a collection of portraits, is one of those projects. It's funded in part by the University of Houston Small Grants Program, Cultural Arts Council of Houston Harris County. Glad they finally did something good. I'm glad Houston Arts Alliance put their money into that because they ain't doing enough to put our, their money into other parts of the community. So it's good you did it on a book. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to protest you today because of that. And was published through Arte Publico Press, our dear friends. This work first exhibited during PhotoFest 2006 at Project Row Houses and later traveled to Los Angeles, Santa Fe, and Dallas, where Charles D. Mitchell reviewed it for Art in America. Montoya's work has traveled with the International Center for the Photography Exhibition Only Skin Deep, Changing Visions of the American Self, and Arte Latino, Treasures from the Smithsonian American Art Museum. Her work is included in the collection of the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, Smithsonian Institute, Museum of Fine Arts Santa Fe, and Museum of Fine Arts Houston. She received 2008 Artadia Award and was honored with the Richard T. Castro Distinguished Visiting Professor in 2009, and she's the real deal. It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. No, by all means, and you've, you're, you're involved with so many things that we probably should check in with you like every other week. <laughs> yeah, well, this week has been really full. I've been um, looking and doing a lot of things, but right now I'm very, ex I'm very excited about... Um, the Contemporary Casta Portraiture, Nuestra Calidad, opening at the Trans Art Foundation for Art and Anthropology. And it's going to open April 11th through May 13th, and viewing is Sunday, 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. And so that's a whole mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. But um, this is a project I've been thinking about for a number of years. Uh, ever since I was a teenager, when I first saw the... Mexican and Latin American casta paintings. And I don't know, a lot of people aren't familiar with Yeah, let, let's start there. And, and by the way, can you give the address out for the museum? Yeah, absolutely. That's 1412 West Alabama Street. Um, and it's just very close to HCP and the Manil, right around that, that area. And the castas are this huge... Uh, they've formed us. I mean, so so this, is, this project of the castas... Perhaps. Well, you tell us. You're the expert. Has damaged a certain view of the world. Tell tell our readers about the castas. Well, the the castas are um, were were devised by the colonial period to demonstrate the riches and to demonstrate the uniqueness of uh, the colonial world to Europe, basically. And what they demonstrated was the interracial marriages and mixing that was going on in the new world because they realized that that was that was unique and that this sort of global kind of experience had never happened before and so what they wanted to do was um i guess you could say document it right but what they started doing was they started documenting not only the racial mixing but how that existed in the colonial body so they started creating a hierarchy as they saw it and the, one of the things that they were doing was demonstrating the cleaning of the blood, 
<laughs> no, by the way, so this is your history that you may have heard about, not thought about lately, or not have heard about, but it shaped us. And you can actually experience it by going to the exhibit. We do want to give you folk, folks a little bit of a background on it. And I think it's totally appropriate that it opens the day that some folks are going to fight for Mexican American studies at the, at the uh, Texas State Capitol because it is all these different threads because it's good and well it's bad and good and what do you think was the effect of these castas which i would also argue we still have you know, we had the american caste system of uh you know very explicit one drop rule maybe right and, and actually the one drop rule was embedded into the casta system so that's where it started you know that that's where we first experience that idea of, of one drop of, of black blood and so the castas usually have like 16 levels Four of those levels demonstrate the cleaning of the blood from Native American blood. The rest of them demonstrate who cannot, whose blood cannot be cleaned. Dang. <laughs> and I wonder, well, who, whose blood might that have been? <laughs> well, anybody who had one drop of black blood. And, and every, every level has its own particular name. So if uh, India married an Espanol, then the child was mestizo. If a mestizo married um, an Espanol, then the child was casista. If the casista married an Espanol, then the child was Espanol. Let me get my chart out. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and back then, what were the ramifications of, I mean, the American caste system, if you had one drop of uh, black blood, you couldn't own things or marry certain folks. Uh, what were the ramifications back then? Pretty much the same. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty much Not the very same. innovative. <laughs> right, right, right. So, so the thing, if you had black blood, then you would go into what they called the, the, the Book of the Casta. So at the time of baptism, there were three books. Either you were in the Book of the India, you were in the Book of the Casta, or you were in the Book of, um, of the Espanol. And people that were of mixed blood would go into the Book of the Casta. Right, and but if your mixture of blood had black blood, then you could never leave that book. So what is why did why did everybody want to get into the book of the casta of the Espanol? Was because they could own land, they could wear fine jewelry and clothes, they could get educated, they could work for the government, they could um, you know hold office. So basically, they could be part of the ruling class. And, and, and of course, there's various examples in literature where someone reveals the one drop of uh, of an octoroon or something like that, and and they lose everything. And, and you're making me think of two recently. National Geographic did its own uh, visit to the Praxis and went backwards and said how pictures they had conveyed were discriminatory in nature. And I only bring it up because I think sometimes in the U.S. we say, well, we don't have a caste system now. Well, National Geographic said we were, we were creating similar things and you know what are the what are the impacts of this you've actually rendered an artistic uh, exhibit that speaks to this so tell us how your exhibit so so what i wanted to do was to revisit that because i realized that what we were looking at was like a colonial practice and i also realized that many people in the united states and and the rest of the americas come from a colonial background and what I wanted to do is demonstrate that the castas indeed occurred. It actually happened. And that you could see it in the blood, that it shows up in the blood. And so what I started doing was looking at the the paintings, and I realized that they were genre paintings. So they were showing families 
in their private spaces or there were families that were working in certain industries and such. And I thought, well, why can't I do a contemporary version of that? But instead of uh, labeling the way that the Gustas labeled, I DNA test. And, <laughs> <laughs> right? And because that's our mo- modern form of labeling. And I, of course, I use National Geographic to do this. Wow. <laughs> wow. Powerful. Right. Very powerful. And, and, and part of it, um, so what the portraits uh, display, what it, one, th- one step that I did was to create um, a catalog. And it's called Contemporary Casta Portraiture Nuestra Calidad. It was funded by the Center for Mexican American Studies at the University of Houston and and um, published through um, Arte Publico Press. Beautiful! What, it looks beautiful, by the way. Yeah, you know, and and what I I really love about the the book is there's these wonderful essays in there um, by uh, Surpik Angelini and uh, Holly Barnett Sanchez and Mia Lopez. And we're going to be having a panel, a roundtable discussion on April 7th at 7 p.m. at uh, TransArt, uh, which is at 1412 West Alabama. And Tomasi Valfrausto was going to be moderating the panel, which is, I'm very excited awesome. about that. It's really awesome. awesome. And uh, what, they're going to, what we're going to be doing is discussing the essays that are in the catalog. And some of the essays talk about the history of... Um, of Latino and um, uh, art as anthropology. Mm. Uh, and that's uh, Surpik will be talking about that. Uh, Mia Lopez will be reviewing the portraiture work and, and talking about it in relation to the contemporary world. Um, Holly Barnett Sanchez is, will be talking about my biography. And I'll be talking about some of the theories that I was really contemplating when I was putting this together, such as um, the optical unconsciousness. Mm. And that's something that um, that we see kind of talked about where technology um, reveals what the eye can't see. Mm. You know, so there's these, this kind of hidden narrative. And so when I did the DNA testing, all that hidden narrative gets revealed. Well, t- tell us one uh, of the pieces that that reveals the most or shocked you the most or or kind of blew well, your mind blew your own mind well you know a, a lot of them did you know most of the people kind of knew what their their background was they there was like family history or what uh, they hoped it was right it, right exactly but <laughs> Yo soy español totalmente. Ah, no. <laughs> <laughs> but one family that um i, I was looking at which is um, called Casta Number no. Nine, and I don't identify people, so that everything becomes uh, more or less kind of iconographic. Mm. It becomes um, uh, more or less the genre of, mm. of sorts. But one, and and then they they do monologues, so they have monologues, and there's a QR code that you use your um, your phone, and a monologue would come up and. Actually, I think she has a couple of those monologues that I would like to to play, uh, but not right now. Uh, let me just talk um, a bit about Casta Number no. Nine because this is the one that I found really interesting and it's kind of complex. Um, the father's Haitian, which is really old colonial, right? the The mother is a mixture between um, her mother's from Texas and she's um, a uh, German Texan, and but her father was from Venezuela. No, excuse me, Ar- Argentina. 
And, and, and by the way, so this is the picture. The picture is beautiful. Right. So if you're just looking at it, that's worth the trip. Right. Right. Well, the, and so we, it's a it's in the backyard, and the their their daughter is really very beautiful. She's wearing this wonderful magenta dress that's kind of flowing, and mom is kind of like you know chilling out back on in in the backyard, and the father's kind of like walking towards um, the family, and. The thing that was really interesting is that what you find is that the uh, what what you find is that uh, the the father is a direct native line. You know, so when you look at like a uh, hundred thousand years ago to a thousand years ago, his mother line is actually in the Americas. However, but his, from the DNA testing, right? But however, his his uh, geographic biogeographic DNA, which goes back six generations, doesn't show any native. And huh. you're like, how does that happen? And and what what's, what's occurring is, is that the bloodline got swamped out. He is a direct native line, but there were so many other people that came onto the island that that the native got swamped out. Wow. So that the whole illusion of pure blood or not pure blood has just been... Swapped out. <laughs> yeah, it was, just, it was just it was swamped out. Huh. You know, but it doesn't mean that he isn't right. He's actually a direct native line, so that means he's really extremely old colonial. That is really old colonial. the The mother, what we see is that she does have Native American, but of course her mother line isn't Native American, but she also has Sub Saharan, and that one that's almost swamped out, and which. Which goes along the story of that area where a lot of the 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 black population was killed off through disease hmm. you know, and so what they talk about in their monologue was how these lies these family lies come forward, right so for him, he always thought, well, I'm African. But then he finds out that, no, I'm a direct native line. For her, she always assumed that, well, you know, my father's, you know, from from um, Argentina and there's no blacks there. But she is black. Wow. And, and, and then, of course, so what you're, and even the picture framing, too. So this picture fits into the genre of what we call a family setting and, mm-hmm. and their relationship. And then they have their own, like you said, uh, lies or myths or... Um, stories, narratives that the families held on to for whatever reason. Right, exactly. Where it wasn't uh, ideal to declare that you have, you know, African blood, for instance. And and on the Haitian island, the Native American just was basically lost. It was just lost, right? But that doesn't mean it didn't exist. It exists right. as, as the history inside of their bloodlines. Wow. It still exists. Wow. And, and, and through, you know, this kind of optical unconsciousness and, and using technology to reveal these things, then we begin to understand more about ourselves. And we understand more about how we are all more alike than what we are not alike. Because everybody comes out of East Africa. I think what's fascinating, too, is that at the same time as it, basically debunks or or reveals 
the absurdity of a caste system, like the one drop, like, is there even a drop? <laughs> you know, is there even a drop? Like, how do you measure that? It sounds so precise. On the flip side, too, there is so much lost because obviously there were very real ramifications early on of having that one imaginary drop. Right. And people wanted to hide it because they wanted to own land, they wanted whatever. And then later on, when they want to reclaim some of it, it's like, well, where did it go? Cause <laughs> right. But I think the thing that's, for me, that's the most important is, is that when I was kind of looking at these little rules that got thrown out during that period of time, the rules have not gone away. Mm. Right? They haven't gone away. We recognize these rules. When I told you the rule, you knew the rule. Right. Right. And so what that means is that, in my mind, is that they're out there, we don't necessarily talk about them but everybody knows them and they the social structure works around it how, how do they wind up manifesting it gets remanifested wow that yeah. is that's yeah. intense right and you know that's one of the things that i wanted to just begin to you know prove to our ourselves and to begin to you know have that uh, conversation and i'm hoping that the work kind of brings out you know that sort of conversation it also brings out uh, realizing how how we are all these mixtures, you know, everybody has a mixture of of many different um, uh, uh, groups. Mm-hmm. So when I was looking, I did sixteen different families, right? I DNA tested sixteen t- different families, and what I I came up with was that everybody has Northern European blood. Which I wasn't expecting. Hmm. Even the young man who came from the Navajo reservation, even the African American family. And what, what does that mean then? What does that mean? What, what what that means is that, you know, in my mind when I'm, I was looking at this, I was thinking, well, then we're all white. <laughs> <laughs> You, you just broke the caste system. <laughs> well, and, 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 I mean, we are. We're, we're, we're all, and, and the, the other thing, too, that was really interesting also is that we all have Asian blood. Now, the, the, the other thing I want to put in there, just to tie it in contemporary, uh, so I do a weekly blog, uh, TonyDiaz.net, The Cultural Accelerator. My most recent one I titled, Are Latinos White or Black Donald Trump? And my whole argument was that, well, before you go messing with all with the questions on the census form and adding new ones about if you're a citizen or not, why don't you fix the ones that are on there? And one of them is, you know, as a Latino, when you get there, okay, ethnicity is easy. It's like which race, and you just broke the whole meter. <laughs> and, yeah. and, that, and that's kind of what I'm getting at too. It, like, and for me too, maybe I mean, is is um, citizenship a caste? Because even that question, I was thinking about it too. Are you a citizen? Well, what about permanent residents people? What about people in flux? What about DACA folks? They're they're not citizens, but they're documented. Um, so so, how, what are the modern day castes? Do you think? Um, you know, I think that that's a, that's a great question. You know, and I would say the the modern day castes are very similar to what the castes were back in the colonial. Dang. Dang, I mean, it, we, we, we think we, we're so fly. We haven't really changed, <laughs> really. I mean, intermarriage. How we? Let's try. Because right, you stop to think, at the bottom of the caste was uh, basically the would be the Native American who had not taken on Christianity. That was on the bottom of the caste, and then after that was the the slave, 
And as soon as the Native American took on Christianity, they went above the slave. Okay, so think about what we have now. We have a prison system that is filled with African Americans and um, brown people, right? Chicanos, who are Native American and black. And that was who was on the bottom of the caste during the colonial period of time. They were the, the people that were the laborers. They were the, the slaves. They were the ones that weren't the... The Native American who didn't take on Christianity was considered to be a barbarian. They didn't take, they weren't following the rules. So what do you do with them? You put them in a prison, <laughs> right? People who don't follow the rules. And from there, though, it's almost impossible for them then to get catch up on education-wise, income-wise. So they are relegated to a certain right. class. Yeah, so the, so it's, it's that, that particular class. And if you think about people that are are coming across the border, how, how are they called? Well, if they don't have their paperwork, they're illegals. Illegals, aliens. Illegal, aliens is actually um, a legal term for Native Americans. Aliens. It's still built into the... It's still built into the language. Their language. It's, and, it's still there, so, and, so that didn't change. And you could actually argue that the recent election was built to preserve that even more, and it's being brought out... Mm-hmm. Even more. Mm-hmm. Man, we got to get to this exhibit. <laughs> Tell <laughs> folks again, one more time, cuando se estrena, and then all the other times they can go to. Okay. All right. So um, the roundtable discussion of uh, Nuestra Calidad is April 7th at 7 p.m. And um, you can view the exhibition at Trans Art Foundation for the Arts and Anthropology from April 11th through May 13th on Wednesday through Sunday, 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. Excellent. And would you allow me to take a picture of one of the pages and post it on our Facebook page? Oh, I would love I, that. Okay. Whew, I was nervous because <laughs> I'll never do it. I'll never do it justice. And then we got to get you back to talk about some of your other uh, works, especially the boxing book. Oh, you know, that's opening up in New York. Dang. Yeah, at PS1. So I'm getting really excited oh, about my goodness. that one. Well, if you have time and energy, we'd love to have you back. Okay. Thank I would you love so that. Much. Thank you so much. We're here with La Genia. La Mera Mera, Delilah. Thank you so much. Right, thank you. You're experiencing Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say. We're going to take a short musical break, and then we'll be back with our dear friend Stephanie Elizondo Christ.
tuning in to Nuestra Palabra, Latino Writers Having Their Say. This is another great example of one of the shows that brings in folks from every art form and different arenas. We're happy to have kicked off the show with the launching of the TV show The Other Side. And then, of course, I brought in Delilah Montoya to talk about... Uh, old history with the caste system but then also talk about the new show that she has which is man i'm still trying to wrap my head around uh all the knowledge she dropped which is pretty intense but now we want to bring you to a dear friend of ours and uh stephanie is joining us on the line Estás ahí, corazón? can you hear me I can hear you. Hello, everybody. Hey, como esta, Stephanie? It is so wonderful to talk to you on the air. And uh, I'm going to tell folks a little bit about you, of course. you She is a globe-trotting author from Corpus Christi, Texas. Her, that's right. Her books include the award-winning memoirs Around the Block, My Life in Moscow, Beijing, and Havana. And I think you, do you have your radio on or I'm talking, I'm going to give my crew a signal. I'm getting a little bit of a feedback right now and I think I'm going to try and talk through it. I'm not sure why we're getting that, but um, mm -hmm. that sounds a little bit, I'll, I'll move a little bit from the mic. And then also, um, let's see, Mexican Enough and all the Agents and Saints dispatches from the U.S. borderlands as well as the best-selling guidebook. 100 Places Every Woman Should Go. She's also written for the New York Times, VQR, The Believer, The Oxford American, and she edited Best Women Traveling Writing 2010. Currently, Assistant Professor of Creative Nonfiction at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, she's lectured on five continents, including as a U.S. State Department Literary Ambassador to Venezuela, one place she was thrilled to leave, was Planet Cancer. She's been in remission since December, and she is a treasure. Un abrazo grande. As a vacunista, as part of nuestra palabra familia. You've, you've, you've really took on quite a battle there. So we're so happy that you, you are past that, that illness. Um, but you kept so much spirit and strength throughout it. Oh, thank you for saying that. Thank you for saying that. Yes, it was quite a journey. Uh, ladies, listen to your bodies <laughs> is all I can say. Um, would you like me to talk a bit about what happened? Yeah. And, and, yeah. and, what, and what do you mean by that, by, by listen to your body? Listen to your bodies. Um, I basically started having indigestion, and unfortunately it started occurring when I was in Peru, and um, I am – well-seasoned in, in uh, you know, travelers' issues and digestive problems. I've been hospitalized all around the world uh, for <laughs> <laughs> one stomach illness or another. Um, this did feel a bit different. I, I can say that, uh, looking back. And so that should have kind of clued me in on it. But I just sort of brushed it aside as something, you know, normal to, to being a traveler. And then I came back to the United States, and uh, I launched my book tour, and I was just, you know, ferociously touring, and I was in a different city every night and um, speaking in front of crowds. And, and again, just, you know, my stomach, something was just not quite right, and I began to get acid reflux, which is something that I hadn't experienced before. And that's it. I mean, it was really, really, really subtle. Um, but thank goodness, uh, when I flew home just for a week to unpack and repack and head out again, I decided to check in with a doctor. 
And so it was that serious, right? It was serious enough where you said, "I better go check it out." But it wasn't serious enough that was debilitating yet. Oh no, nothing. It was never painful. It was actually that's what's that's what's really insidious about ovarian cancer is that it's actually never really painful um, until it's until it's too late. Uh, so it's, it is called the silent killer of women, um, and one in 80 women get it. And uh, generally it's not found until stage four. But I was very lucky. I have a really rare strand called mucinous uh, ovarian cancer. And what that does is it actually grows gargantuan tumors. So what I thought was just, you know, traveler-related stomach indigestion actually turned out to be a tumor hanging off of my left ovary that was the size of a basketball. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Holy cow. I know. I know. I've never had children. So, you know, it was interesting. My first thought was like empathy, right? I was like, oh, my ovary, you know, so underutilized. Like, <laughs> I mean, I can understand. <laughs> she wanted to grow something. And, you know, we're from Texas, so she grew something very big. And, <laughs> and I was incredibly lucky that, um, that that she did grow such a huge tumor because uh, we were able to detect it and, um, and uh, it was removed. But when it was removed, they discovered that there was cancer inside of it. And so that is why I underwent chemotherapy. And um, I, I just had my last treatment in December. Ay, so gracias a Dios. in remission. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, no, and, and you did have such a powerful spirit throughout, and it's so wonderful that you can look back and share because I think you're right, especially in our culture, um, mm. we're supposed to tough through it, or, or worse, we think, why well, spend the money? Um, yes, yes. Money, I know. I mean, I, I actually am incredibly privileged and lucky to have health insurance, but even that, I'm like, oh, you know, I don't want to. I haven't met my deductible yet. Is it really necessary that I go in and have all these tests? And yes, and all of that, you just have to uh, somehow, and I know it's really, really challenging, um, but uh, yeah, health really comes first. And any anything out of the ordinary, um, especially as women move on into middle age, um, it's really important to be hyper, hyper, hyper vigilant about ovarian cancer because I didn't even know that there was ovarian cancer. Like, I didn't know anything wow. about this, um, but it, I got quite, a, quite an education. Um, and I can say I'm really lucky also that I've been able to pick up the tour um, and uh, I was able to reschedule a lot of events and the tour is totally what is reviving me Man. at a cellular level. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So Pero Mexicana, hardworking Mexicana here. <laughs> hardworking Chicana. <laughs> like, I love it. And I've always admired that about you. But but I think as as we talk about the work of art, because that is so important to, to motivate other people through art and to liberate their imaginations. But you're not here to tell the story and you're not here to share more art if you don't take care of yourself. So the lesson out there right now, mm-hmm. if you're listening, the muses have said, listen to yourself, <laughs> you know, uh, and really make sure that your everyone is at full mode so we can count on you at different times. And, and now let's celebrate the book. Felicitaciones. And uh, t- tell us about the new book. So this book uh, picks up right where Mexican Enough left off. Uh, so actually all three of my memoirs are uh, consecutive and they're serial. And uh, this one, uh, I actually spent 10 years on this book. So it was just a monster of a project. And what I'm attempting to do is examine what happens when an international borderline slices your ancestral land in two. And to do that, I have examined uh, two communities, uh, one being my own community, Tejas, uh, southern Texas, Woo-hoo. and I'm looking at Tejanos, the legends of Tejanos, 
And I'm comparing that with the Mohawks of Akwesasne. And so Akwesasne is an indigenous nation that straddles not only the New York-Canadian borderline, but also the Quebec and Ontario borderline. And I happened to spend a year there, uh, living in close proximity to the nation, and I was just shocked. Every time I went to the nation, I felt like I had deja vu, uh, which is literally all of the tragedies that so many of us have experienced in southern Texas. They are experiencing, too, from the trafficking of guns, arms, and people right through their nation to the systematic elimination of the mother tongue, um, you know, just as all of our elders Remember in the 1950s, uh, Mexican-American students being punished for speaking Spanish in the class. Uh, in Native Americans had an even more systemic 150-year-old um, history with Indian residential schools where they were uh, brutalized for speaking their own Native languages. Um, and also something that uh, is perhaps germane to me having cancer is that um, both of our communities are surrounded by polluting industry. So uh, in Corpus Christi, we're surrounded by petrochemical industries and refineries, um, as I know you all are, are in Houston as well. And uh, the same exact thing is happening in Aquasazni. They're actually surrounded by Superfund sites, uh, Alcoa and GM and Reynolds. Wow. And, um, yeah, and I have never seen um, any group uh, as unhealthy in the world, actually, as I have in, in certain regions of South Texas that are living near the refineries and, and, uh, and Aquasasne. Um, really, really high rates of unexplained cancers, really high rates of asthma, really high rates of birth defects. Uh, that's, that's endemic in both of these communities. No, that's potent. Also, let me tie it into our the guest we just had on the air, Delala Montoya, who has a new exhibit talking about the castas, where she, where she talks about how we haven't really gone too much further than when the original cast kept different groups apart. You've just touched on it in one way is environmentalism and then you've mm-hmm. also touched on some of the other practices that are are meant to subjugate uh, folks as well. Tell me a little bit about the Ontario um, Quebec yes. border. Aquasazi. Yeah, Aquasazi is amazing. <laughs> Aquasazi is amazing and whether uh, I, I actually, my, one of my dreams with this book is to find some university or organization that would be willing to sponsor an encuentro uh, and bring together um, the leaders of the Mohawk Nation and also uh, some Tejano activists that I that I interviewed uh, and feature in the book. I actually just got back late last night from Aquasazni. I spent a wow. week up there and did events at the nation. I presented my book before the chiefs, and they're very excited and on board. They they are eager to, uh, to, to start a dialogue uh, about what it means to live amidst these borderlines. So so just to give some perspective, so Aquasazni, of course, is you know a thousand years, many thousands of years old, um, a very, very, very old, old tribe uh, with deep, deep, deep roots, and uh, they were split. Uh, their territory has been split by the U.S. Canadian border, and uh, their 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 nation is uh, unfortunately they've lost the vast majority of their land. Um, at the moment, there's only about twenty six thousand acres that are recognized uh, by by both governments. And uh, about 13,000 people live there. And quick question. Do they live mostly on one side of the border versus the other? And can they cross? Yes. They're completely, maybe a little bit more on the U.S. side, but they are completely, um, it's, it's, it's actually pretty wild. Uh, you know, you'll, you'll be driving. They're in the part of New York where you are just suddenly in Quebec without wow. even realizing it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you only know that you're there because suddenly the signs are in kilometers to the mile. <laughs> Yeah, and there's actually no border patrol in that particular region uh, because the Mohawks actually live in a sovereign nation. However, 
they have not a border wall, but they have a border bridge wow. that is actually, I, 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 in my book I argue, it is an architectural violence that is very much uh, prevalent hmm. of, of our border wall. Um, and it very much serves to try to divide this community um, in that there's a series of bridges that you have to take to get from the mainland uh, on the United States side of, of their nation uh, onto the, the part that in Ontario um, you have to cross a bridge. And the Canadian, this is quite a long story, which I don't have time to get into, but the Canadian government has made it very, very difficult for them to do so. And they basically have to check in with the Canadian government uh, which is to say the, the Canadian customs every single time they arrive or depart their island. Wow. Um, and, yeah, and a thousand people live on the island. So this is a daily, um, it, it, it probably, they spend an average of like an hour and a half doing something that they totally shouldn't have to do. Um, so it's a course of tremendous frustration that there have been so many protests uh, uh, in, the, in the recent years. And, uh, yeah, so Aquatazini is very much in a, a nation that's in a state of continued resistance. And, and and I'm gonna ask you if you have do you have a, a section you can read for us in a little bit? Oh, okay. I will grab it right now. <laughs> oh, cool. And I kind of want to give you time to to look for it as I ask you uh, as you as you tell us a little bit more about it. But it it does sound like it is such a powerful. Uh, you're reporting or conveying or dramatizing or bringing to life to us something that's been there for for so long. I guess even before there were these nations. But, but of course, there's these different practices that keep people, what, what did you say, frustrated and um, separated? Mm-hmm. Absol- yes, yes, absolutely. But the, the Mohawks are really amazing about fighting it every chance that they get. Wow. Um, yeah, so let me, um, one thing I can read really quickly just to kind of give a sense of, um, actually, let me read this little segment right here. Um, this is sort of first impression. Before arriving here, I didn't think the northern borderlands could differ more starkly from the one where I grew up. Temperatures, for starters, tend to be 60 degrees apart. South Texas feels like a large wet dog is sitting on your face. The heat and humidity are that oppressive. The North Country is more like a cat hissing and scratching you. It is that visceral, that persistent, that extreme. And when I step into the car and in 20 minutes reach a bridge that requires a passport to cross, and descends into a shockingly different economic strata, I realize I've been here once before. And when I learn that a nearby community is rallying to deify an ancestor as a saint, and those very same people are also battling poverty, obesity, and industrial waste, I realize I will once again be caught in the suspension of disbelief. And when I read about people getting arrested for smuggling aliens by speedboat and drugs by snowmobile, I realize I am yet again living on an edge. In other words, when I stare around this remote new world, I realize I am home. Mm. So, so that was the first. Uh, That's <laughs> potent. <laughs> yeah. So, of course, the people I'm referring to are, are the Mohawks. Um, and then one other, this super short thing I'll read is uh, a sign that hangs that used to hang at Aquasadni. Uh, that'll give you a sense of what I mean by resistance. Welcome to Aquasadni. While a visitor to our community, you will be under the jurisdiction of the following. Canada, the United States, the Mohawk Nation, the St. Regis Mohawk Tribal Council, the Mohawk Council of Aquasasne, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, New York, Ontario, Quebec, Huntington County, Franklin County, St. Lawrence County, 
York State Police, Mohawk Police, Quebec Police Force, <laughs> Ontario Provincial Police, the Royal Canadian <laughs> Mounted Police, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the U.S. Border Patrol, Canadian Customs, U.S. Customs, and coming soon, the National Guard. Drive carefully. Have a nice day. So these are all of these wow. many, many, many organizations <laughs> that are trying to control a group of 13,000 highly unruly Mohawks. <laughs> <laughs> That's Pode. We are on the air with our dear friend Stephanie Elizondo Greist, who is reading from her book, All the Agents and Saints, Dispatches from the U.S. Borderlands. This is the story you have to tell. This is legacy-level work. Uh, and, and I think what is scary and potent and beautiful is that you could feel the common ground just around you by the way reality has been shaped. That's, that's, that's potent. Yes, yes. I mean, even down to, to religion, actually, which is something that I found uh, really delightful. Um, so Mohawks are, many Mohawks are also Catholic, and uh, that um, people began to be Christianized uh, by force, of course, uh, in the 1500s. And the tribe was initially very resistant, but then they began to um, realize that there were uh, quite a number of commonalities between their own um, their own traditional religion, which is our traditional spiritual practice, which is called the Long House. And so they've kind of made a syncretic religion, uh, sort of similar to Santeria. So some Mohawks practice that, and other Mohawks practice the, the Long House. But um, what I found really intriguing was while I was there, um, when I was living in close proximity to this nation, they had the opportunity to, um, to, um, to be present when one of their own was actually canonized a saint by the Vatican. So that wow. was Thrilling. Um, it took wow. 500 years, but uh, the very, very first—actually, she's the first Native American to ever be canonized a saint. And her name is Gadali Sekakwita. And just as Leverhulme de Guadalupe tends to appear upon grain silos uh, and and on top of the Mohawks also have these really lovely encounters with Gadali Sekakwita. So she appears in dumplings and you know flower batter. <laughs> and uh, so I met. Elders who were very thrilled that they had, you know, seen the image of her appearing in something, and they make a shrine out of it. So I'm like, my God, these are so our people, uh, right? <laughs> you know, more encuentros. But yes. and I think what's this is powerful on so many levels too, because obviously there are folks that would want us to um, to not embrace our past, to feel as if there's something lacking in us for staying in a certain station of society, or for internalizing all this uh, police control by saying that we are prone to violence or we are uh, savage barbaric. This comparison proves that we're not. And also, you're getting me more excited to push for Mexican-American studies. Uh, of course, appropriately, next Wednesday, April 11th, some of our folks are going up to Texas State Board of Education to demand uh, the mm. approval of guidelines for Mexican-American studies courses in Texas. But now that you're pointing out that this is a trope or tactic used across borders modern day, it really seems as if it is vital or it is another act of violence against brown indigenous people to, to keep us in our place. Absolutely. Yeah, I always thought that these were just problems that we experienced in isolation down in mm. South Texas, but no, it's actually endemic to what it means to be a member of a borderland. And the Mohawks are actually really very organized. They have border summits, and they meet with other indigenous nations all throughout. So they meet with the Lakota, they meet with the Blackfoot, they meet with, you know, many different um, other other nations that are also uh, bisected by the border. 
And I feel like that's something that we could benefit from as well. Def- you're right, definitely. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think you, you bring it up in a very powerful case. I, I tell you what, as we've got about uh, four minutes left, I do want to one congratulate you on the book. Uh, yes. I want to bless you. I'll be the- reading. Is- <laughs> yes, tell us. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so um, this is actually an event that has been canceled twice. It was originally <laughs> going to be in August and got canceled because y'all had a hurricane, and then it was going to be in November, and it got canceled because I had cancer. So um, let's really hope. Let's this do it. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> so that will be this Sunday, 5 p.m. at Brazos Bookstore, and it would be amazing if you all could come out and uh, join me. That would be beautiful. 5 p.m. at Brazos. Our friends at Brazos off of Bisone and 59, because destiny demands it. I can't wait to hear more about the book, and I am, we're so blessed that that um, you have put so much work into the art that it's saved you, that it saves us. I'm so happy that you're a professor over at Chapel Hill, I do, because <laughs> one, you have insurance, and two, those students are very lucky to be around uh, this imagination that will also teach them about the MLA format. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes, you know, that's what... That's, that is something that has really been uh, quite, a, quite, a, quite intense to think about, actually, is the timing of it all. Um, so, so Nuestra Palabra has been such a huge supporter of my career back when I was totally nomadic and just living out of suitcases <laughs> all across the United States, you know, doing, doing book events, trying to write my first book. And, um, and I feel like uh, it's sort of this divine... Uh, province. I mean, it's, it's, I, I don't know how to explain it other than La Vajencita is like totally looking out for me. Mm-hmm. But I feel like I got cancer at the exact right moment in my life. If I got it any earlier, I wouldn't have had health insurance. If I got it any later, my mother and father wouldn't have been able to be as involved. Um, my, my parents actually came up to Chapel Hill and stayed with me for three and a half months. My father has Alzheimer's. It was a very difficult journey for them to make, but they were you know, with me in my apartment uh, helping me through this. Um, so, yeah, and I can only say it's um, something else to any writers who might be out there, you know, all throughout my career, I feel like I've been plagued with doubt, you know, is this the right path? Is this, mm. the right path? Is this being, you know, am I gambling too much? Um, at, you know, I didn't do the safe thing of, of, you know, buying a house, getting the real job, doing this, doing that. And it's just something I've always been so, so anxious that I was going to someday regret it. And um, I have to say that, Literally, um, once I got diagnosed, I was infused with this galactic high mm. that I had lived the life that I really wanted to live by prioritizing my art, by prioritizing traveling, by prioritizing the people of the planet. Um, it, was a, it was a really, really meaningful uh, realization. Wow, that's what's up. Yeah. <laughs> that's what's yeah. up. I'm so glad if, if you're tuning in right now, I'm so glad you're tuning in to get that message from La Marnita Stephanie. Come, you know, breaking chakras with us on the air for many, many years now. <laughs> Can't wait to hang out with you Sunday. That will be amazing. Yay! Un abrazo grande de tu familia en Houston, Texas, and we will all convene this Sunday, 5 p.m. at Brazos Bookstore. Thank you so Excellent. much for calling in. Thank you. Nos vemos. Ciao, ciao. Ciao. Man, what a great show. They're all great. This one? We, we we did something today. So, something's up today with the universe. So I'm I'm so glad you joined us to change some lives. Thank you, Letty, for running the board. It was seamless. 
And uh, Jack, Jack just kind of coached a little bit, but Jack comes through big time all the time on short notice. Appreciate it, my man. Thank you. No problem. Always a pleasure. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jack. <laughs> I put him on the spot. And Welcome as always. Tony. Awesome. Yo soy su servidor, Tony Diaz, el libro traficante. Thank you so much for tuning in. We're going to see you in many of the spots we mentioned, cool events, or on social media. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next week. Ciao. Hey, kids. Listen online to either of KPFT's two live channels on your phone. Install the TuneIn app, available for both Apple and Android, and then search for KPFT. You'll see both the FM channel and the newly improved HD3 channel. Press play and you're listening, or point your browser to kpft.org. Listening online means no more reception issues. Tune in our mix of local social justice shows and music selected with love by our Houston DJs, all there on your phone at any time. Mark your calendar for Sunday, April 8th, when KPFT is throwing its birthday party at Heights Theater from 12 noon to 6 p.m. Get your tickets now at theheightstheater.com. Proceeds will benefit your community radio station. You'll hear the music of award-winning singer-songwriter Ruthie Foster with her soulful mix of blues, folk, rock, and gospel. Kevin Russell, the dynamic force of nature behind the group Shiny Ribs. Independent Texas songwriter Terry Hendricks with Lloyd Maines. Lisa Morales who will sing beautiful lyrics in English and Spanish, the Peterson Brothers who will bring you old school blues, soul, and funk, and local favorite folk family revival. Generation Radio will kick things off with a great set of world beats. Don't miss the KPFD birthday party Sunday, April 8th at the Heights Theater, 339 West 19th Street. To get your tickets, go to theheightstheater.com or to reserve a VIP suite, call 713-526-4000, extension 314, KPFT Houston.